Welcome to Talking New Energy, a podcast from Delta EE, the new energy experts. We'll be talking about how the energy transition is developing across Europe, with guests who are working at the leading edge of this transition. Hello and welcome to the episode. Today we're crossing the Atlantic and heading to Texas to explore what we can learn from the February power crisis. The crisis left over 4.5 million homes and businesses without power, some for many days. And by some estimates, the economic damage is a staggering $195 billion. Lots has been written about the causes, with much of the attention understandably on the supply side. Was the generating problem frozen wind turbines or frozen gas power plants or, or both? But there's been less focus on what we saw happen with customers, less focus on the demand side. And while the crisis has had terrible impacts for sure, these sorts of crises also provide an opportunity to step back, look at how markets could be reformed and look at what could be better in the future. Could, for example, demand response play a bigger role in this situation if it was to happen again? So to explore these questions, I've got three great guests joining me today. Let's say hello. First, Lynn Kiesling, who is an economist and visiting professor at Carnegie Mellon University in the US. Hello, Lynn. Hello. Um, I'll introduce all the guests straight up and then we'll get into the discussion. So second is Sid Sashteva, founder and CEO at InnerWatts, a SaaS platform that leverages insights for more than 40 million meters uh, across several countries. And many of those meters were in Texas, where I think you're based, Sid. So, hello, Sid. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. And third guest is my colleague and Delta EE expert, John Ferris, one of our experts on how the demand side can play a much greater role in electricity markets. Hello, John. Hello, John. Um, right, uh, Lynn, let's start with you. And I'm going to ask you what sounds like a simple question. Uh, how would you summarize the key causes of the crisis? Uh, complex, I know, but if you had to summarize it for our listeners that aren't that familiar with it, what would you say? Yeah, that you're exactly right. It is a very complex process and I'll try to give an overview and then uh, Sid can add from his uh, you know, hands-on experience uh, on the ground in Texas. Uh, I think the, it, the, the event itself was a combination of un precedented and unexpected depth of cold weather and duration of cold weather. There were uh, subsequent winter storms and Texas gets a, you know, a bad winter storm at least every year. This one in particular uh, was one of the worst since at least 1989. There was another bad storm in 2011 that wasn't nearly this long or this cold. Uh, but this one started with a bad storm on February 11th, which uh, involved a lot of ice and snow and very low temperatures uh, into single digits. Uh, and then subsequent storms, particularly on the, the 14th and 15th, which uh, were surprisingly large in terms of their coverage, covering almost the entire state. And Texas is a very large state. So yep. this is a, a very large storm system. And the duration of the single digit temperatures throughout the whole week meant that um, 
the municipalities had run out of their uh, you know storm their their sand and salt that they used to clear the roads uh, so um, crews couldn't get to um, to to facilities to defrost them uh, and and so the the magnitude of the weather event was was large what this meant in terms of the set of interconnected infrastructures uh, was really profound. And, and typically, you know, we think about the electric system, but there are really three interdependent uh, infrastructure systems that were in play here. One was obviously the electric system, and there was, um, you know, but there were power plants that were sitting and and ready to generate, but the upstream natural gas supply system was having a lot of problems. Uh, natural gas, mm -hmm. when it's extracted in Texas, is very wet. It comes out with quite a bit of water. And so there was a lot of freezing uh, and, and freezing of hydraulic systems as well at the wellheads. So um, then that meant that it was difficult for natural gas power plants to get their gas supply mm -hmm. and what limited gas supply there was was going to more to home heating that got prioritized and then downstream from the electric is the uh, water supply and so as the freeze continued there was a lot of uh, difficulty with the water system and places having to be on boil water uh, alerts so that they could have yeah. potable water so lynn is Obviously, demand spiked, the cold weather, a fair bit of electric heating, I imagine. So demand spiked, generation. What, in theory, was there enough generation if it had all been working, able to work and working properly? Or was there a fundamental mismatch between the spike in demand and how much generation was should be available? It, it was an unprecedented spike in demand because of the, the very low single digit uh, Fahrenheit, I should say, temperatures. Uh, and that meant that the demand for electric heating was higher than, uh, than before and higher than, than typical. Yeah. So you have these combined demands for electricity uh, and, and combined demands for natural gas, both for heating and for power generation. Yeah. Okay. Um, so a, a mixture of very high demand generation capacity not being able to work as it had hoped, and therefore not enough generation to meet that demand. Sid, from from your perspective, you're you've got uh, a lot of meter data coming through your your platform. What did you see happen in customers' homes? Uh, can you paint a bit more of a picture apart from the obvious of it got colder and demand went up? Yeah, um, so the demand went up across the board. Uh, in Texas, just so your, your listeners have the context, homes, 60% uh, of the homes use electric or, or use gas for heating, and about 40% of the homes use electricity for heating. The number of electric heating homes are increasing every year. So, one would imagine at least the non-electric heating customers or, or gas heating customers would uh, not have much of a spike. Yeah. But what we saw was almost across the board, and Texas uh, has, has a coastal belt too, so 
backs up to the Gulf Coast uh, of Mexico. So what we what we observed was that one cities that were in the north, like Dallas, Fort Worth, they saw a jump, and that part of the state uh, experiences cold weather in uh, yeah, almost every year. So so they are pretty well versed with it. Even uh, in that part of the state, we saw about 53% jump in energy consumption or power consumption for electric heating customers. Yeah. Against a normal winter day. And the yep. non-electric heating customers saw their power jump by about 70%. 70? Wow. Yes. 70. What was going on there? Uh, people plugging in portable electric heaters? Uh, that, uh, as well as just, uh, um, you know, in Texas, we also have pools. So a lot of homes have uh, swimming pools. And what mm. you don't want is you don't want the pipes to freeze. So they have yep. the pool pumps running almost 24 by 7. Yeah. So there are a lot of things that were running 24 by 7. Um, then if you come closer to the coast or actually on the coast of Texas, um, what we predicted uh, was, and, and we, we saw the actuals came in line, the energy consumption or power consumption actually increased by about 140 to 160% across both electric and non-electric non heating customers. Mm. And the reason is um, that homes along the coast really don't get this kind of a cold snap and they're not used to and they can bear up to a certain extent but when you have temperatures going down in single digits the, the power consumption really sh shoots up so that's yeah. the kind of granularity and visibility that i think was missing from the whole not just the discussion but it's missing from our our regular planning exercise as well on a day-to-day -day basis Lynn, you mentioned maybe the worst storm since 1989. So that's a one in 31 year or sort of one in 30 year storm, I guess. But that was that not in the planning or was that not planned for? Did people not understand what would happen when the next one in 30 storm came along? Or was that understanding there, but the generation side failed and people didn't anticipate that? I think in, in general, and there are, are multiple levels at which we could talk about that. One is the kind of individual homeowner, you know, what as as or or resident, I should say, because you know, renter owner. That you know, I don't think as a as a residential energy consumer, I don't think you think much about such infrequent uh, weather events, especially in Texas, if you do think about weather events, you think about heat, you think about hurricanes. Yes. And and so winter weather events are something that are, are so unusual. Uh, and um, now if we go up, say, uh, uh, up the planning layer to, uh, say, either a um, the wires companies, the transmission and distribution utilities, that plan the infrastructure or even ERCOT. I think the ERCOT is the Electricity Reliability Council of Texas, and they're responsible for the operations of the wires network, the uh, reliability of service, they're the, and, and um, the operations of the wholesale power markets. And so in ERCOT's planning horizon, my understanding is that they use 10 years of data. 
And so okay. in 10 years of data, it's hard to capture a one in 20 or a one in 30 event. Yeah. Uh, and and so I think one of the one of the retrospective how can we do better next time analyses that will be done is how can ERCOT improve its planning horizon and its planning methodology to adapt to the fact that with climate change weather patterns are likely to be more variable and harder to predict. Yeah, I guess that coupled with a more electrified future more electric homes as you were saying Sid, more electric vehicles um the yeah it's it's happening both ways more extreme weather events and more electric more electrification uh as well yeah i mean uh, if i may jump in there are just the whole planning and it's not just specific to te texas it's almost everywhere in the world mm. you bundle residential power consumers as electric heat or non-electric heat and you take an average of those consumers and that's what you use for planning and you're looking back to predict the future yeah. and every time we will continue to have if we continue with that same trend we will continue to have these podcasts that will focus on what happened uh, you know, before and what can we do in the future instead of creating or, or modifying our planning uh, uh, exercise to include the scenarios, uh, what could happen in future, right? I mean, I don't yeah. know, 10 years down the road, Texas could see, God forbid, but uh, uh, a windstorm. So yeah. you may have poles and wires go down. How would that change? What what impact it would have on the consumer? So, so we need to take these things into consideration. We are not learning from other markets. London had a beast from the east storm in 2017, 18. Yeah, a few years ago. And like Houston and many of the Texas cities, and by the way, this is the only common thing between Houston and London. Um, <laughs> London does not have the sand and salt to, to remove snow from the streets or uh, winter precipitation. So the learnings the, uh, from a demand perspective uh, how the demand changes when folks stay at home not many businesses are running when you have a winter precipitation Houston and other parts of Texas could have learned from that market yeah and being able to predict at least in a I won't say a year before but at least a week before the winter storm was supposed to hit Texas yeah okay so one big lesson then is planning and maybe a different uh, a different way of looking at the, the future, both in time horizons, in probabilities rather than a deterministic way, mm -hmm. and what can you learn from elsewhere. Um, John, I'd like to look at the demand side a bit now. And in Europe, we're seeing more and more uh, activity with dynamic time of use pricing. So bigger industrial and commercial customers are used to this to some degree already. But increasingly, residential customers can be on tariffs where the price changes every half hour or every hour um, linked to the wholesale market. And it's quite a nice concept. People are attracted to the idea of negative prices or very low prices. Could I get paid for charging my electric vehicle, for example? But on the flip side, you could find yourself with very high prices. And in the Texas crisis, uh, the price shot through the roof. Can you tell us a bit about a startup called Gridy and what happened with them in the Texas crisis? 
Yeah, so, so Gridy was an electricity retailer. And what that means is that they don't own any of the networks. And uh, unlike some other retailers, they don't necessarily own any generation. So what Gridy was responsible for was buying power for its customers on the wholesale market and recovering the costs of energy, the use of the network, any taxes and levies through the tariffs that they charged customers. Now, most retailers historically have bought energy in advance and managed that market risk on behalf of consumers, giving them the certainty of a fixed rate for energy. Now, as you mentioned, John, there's, there's, there's a trend towards new innovative retailers, including the Barry Energy in France, Octopus Energy in Tibber, that are offering customers tariffs where the rates vary from day to day and, and at different times reflecting the actual grid conditions. Now, in the long run, this will tend to work out cheaper for the consumer, but in the short term, they're much more volatile. So higher during the evening peaks and lower, perhaps even negative, on windy nights. So as a consumer, if you can take advantage of this volatility by charging your EV or running your washing machine when prices are low, not only are you rewarded for helping to balance the grid, you're also consuming more when renewable generation is high, so making the, 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 the grid green. So, so that's a that's a nice side of it, but the, that, that's the attractive side of it. So that was what Gridy offered in the in, yep. in the Texas market. So consumers in in Texas were able to have retail choice and decide whether to go to a, a traditional retailer or to move to Gridy, who had yep. launched in, in in 2016 and had signed up about 30,000 customers on real time tariffs. So Gridy. Yep didn't purchase any energy in advance. When the spot prices in Texas reached the cap of $9,000 a megawatt hour, compared to a typical rate of around $40 or $50, some consumers ended up receiving bills in the tens of thousands of dollars for the week of the storm. That's amazing. And it was, it, it was. And Gritty wasn't the only company that, that, that offers such a tariff. Octopus Energy had actually launched in the US that very week. So having made an acquisition a few years ago, they rebranded the week before the storm. And being part of a larger group, they were able to, to take the decision to cap the rates for their customers. So not expose them to the full price of, of the imbalance uh, market. Gritty wasn't able to do this and ended up yeah. going into bankruptcy, owing the system operator over $25 million. Wow, and customers still owing, well, did customers have, were they still liable for that that amount of money, their customers? I, I think that's an ongoing discussion within Texas as to whether customers should be charged those rates, and also whether the retailers should be charged what they owe to, to, the, to ERCOT for their imbalance. It wasn't just yeah. the, the new retailers, but some of the more traditional entities where their own generation was unable to get the gas to meet their, their customers' needs, found themselves with, uh, with bills in the hundreds of millions, if not in one example, over $2 billion owing to ERCOT. Yeah. Okay. So everyone was stung in some way through those huge, huge jumps in the, the wholesale price. Sometimes it passed on to customers, sometimes it didn't. 
And I think it's also important to note that, um, as John said, they had, uh, Gritty had uh, only about 29,000 customers, and this is in a market of 1.2 million or so customers. So, so the, the Gritty wholesale price pass-through contract was very much a niche product, but it was much, very much in keeping with their business model that they passed through that wholesale price. And uh, unlike, as you said, unlike Octopus Energy, which could um, you know, use use its internal hedging to uh, to kind of modify, you know, slight differences in the business model, but both offering real time prices. Yeah, and I guess we've got to be careful not to uh, tar all real time price business models with. Uh, well, with that brush, with with a, that negative experience of gritty, because there are lots of different variations to real-time pricing and amounts of risk that you can pass through to customers and ways you can do that. Um, but I'm interested in whether the degree to which flexible demand could have helped in this crisis. Uh, so can we imagine, Lynn, can you imagine a situation where it might have been cold, but rather than have some people or millions of people without power, could everyone have coped with a bit of cold for the sake of reducing demand and keeping the lights on everywhere. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's uh, there are two aspects of that. Um, one is the existing uh, flexible demand and demand response por portfolio in Texas. And there are quite a few industrial and commercial customers who are on uh, demand response contracts and uh, Again, like much of the Texas system, those contracts are geared towards summer heat and uh, not necessarily towards February winter storms. Uh, but so, so for especially industrial customers, it may not have been as easy for them to adjust their, their activities in February, given that they're sort of geared towards towards being able to adjust them in the summer. But so there is some demand response in the system and, and there was commercial and industrial response. I'd be interested in, in Sid's uh, observation of those data, but compared to the magnitude of the, uh, of the demand for, for electricity, it just wasn't sufficient. The other, the other part I think is the residential question and the extent to which there are untapped resources in, in homes that we can use. Uh, you know, and Sid mentioned the um, pool pumps, you know, that if, if, for example, more consumers were on real-time prices, but that it was a transactive system. So you had digital sensors and you could automate responses to those price signals that, um, you know, people could have lowered their thermostat or people's thermostats could have been programmed to lower automatically and having your house, say, at 60 degrees, uh, but being able to keep the system on is preferable to being blacked out for two days. Uh, using automation to and price signals to cycle pool pumps and uh, and to cycle uh, refrigerator, fridge freezer condensers, um, you know, those kinds of things that would have provided some more demand side flexibility in a highly distributed way that could have added up to enough to at least attenuate some of what was experienced. 
that automation, I think, would have been really important in this situation where the blackouts actually started at about one o'clock in the morning on Monday. So even the most dedicated of consumers that are looking to provide demand response are unlikely to be monitoring the markets at that point in time. Yeah, and with I, we're seeing more automation. Uh, some of those companies you mentioned in Europe, uh, John, I know Lynn and Sid in the US, you've got smart thermostat problems, uh, programs which have automation in them as well, where the customer might set, hey, this is a band we're willing to accept, the comfort band we're willing to accept, and within that, uh, you can have some automated response. Um, I, I think we also need to look at this from a from a structural angle. This is not the first time we are having a demand response discussion when you know, around an event like this. But if I can take uh, draw some analogy, a couple of analogies, one from the the mortgage industry, where whoever you know has taken a mortgage home mortgage loan knows that the interest rate will be specific to that consumer because the factors are different. My risk profile is different. Same thing in the energy space. Why do we have the same rate for every customer when the demand profile is different? So if uh, if you look at Texas, the cost distribution actually across all the consumers is about 107%. It's way too wide, right? So if yeah. I am a retailer who has higher cost to serve customers and I'm giving them a lower rate or the average rate, I am running the risk of losing those customers versus I have a lower cost to serve customers and I'm giving them a higher uh, uh, or giving them a higher rate, then I have the other problem. So the point I'm making is the more uh, personalized pricing the industry can come up with, the more consumers can start making structural uh, improvements within their homes or businesses to respond to either these kind of events on, a, on, on an, in an isolated way or more on an ongoing way. So if, if I am charged 20 cents a kilowatt hour versus 10 cents, which is the average rate, at least I, I will take notice and say, okay, something is wrong. I need to either fill up my pool with sand, not use it or make some, some other changes. Hmm. So I, I don't think we can, to John's point, we can expect folks when you are going through all this uh, or this unprecedented event to think about, oh, I need to turn off my, my, my light bulb or I need to turn off this. So the industry needs to look at it on a more structural way rather than in a very transactional way. And to what extent, Sid and Lynn, do you see discussions starting to happen around or people really looking at that seriously at personalization Sid or Lynn in terms of more sophisticated demand side programs or demand response? Deep sigh because uh, it's I, I do fear that this event is going to be a bit of a black eye for the idea of more personalized pricing and more dynamic pricing uh, even though the folks who did uh, choose the wholesale pass-through price and did have high bills uh, were a very small share of the entire market. Um, and, and so I think 
I think Sid's exactly right. We have to have a larger conversation about both the transactional and economic and market aspects, but also the more kind of structural uh, regulatory and business model aspects of you know what what does the what do these increasingly heterogeneous and uh, technologies with different capabilities that are going to be scattered throughout the distribution grid now what does that mean in terms of our ability to to curate and customize electric services for different people who have different demand profiles and different preferences. And even more so because some of those resources are going to be things like electric vehicles and battery storage. Those small customers can even provide grid services, things like voltage regulation and, and local you know, support of, of the grid and could be compensated accordingly. For example, in a local energy market for grid services. It, it's a, that's a model of, uh having prices that reflect the, the demand profile that is common and familiar to commercial and industrial customers where you've got larger volumes that the, the history of having smart meter data is much longer and um, we're yet to see that in in the consumer space but that does lead to differentiated pricing that doesn't necessarily leave the consumer open to the volatility of short-term pricing so I think that sets a baseline that reflects the shape of the consumer. And from there, you can look at deriving demand flexibility by giving access to markets. And one thing that didn't happen in Texas, apart from Gritty, was retailers offering customers $9,000 a megawatt hour or even anywhere close to that in order to reduce demand. And those that weren't yeah. cut off were more than able to continue consuming, paying 10, 12 cents an hour, regardless of the impact on, on the rest of the, the, the state. Yeah, so you have this big mismatch between demand and generation. I guess you want to be careful how much you expose the customers to the, the volatility that greedy customers were exposed to. And this mismatch, will always, this mismatch will always stay if we are not extending or sharing the demand intelligence with the upstream supply generators and the grid operators yeah if the grid operator and the supply generators would have known that along the coast this is how the load is you know will spike by more than 100 percent when weather goes down i'm sure at least the power plants supporting that part of the grid would have uh, done weatherization or ERCOT would have forced them to have some weatherization in place. So yeah. the, 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 the lack of intelligence about our customers is, is really what's, to, to, the way we see it is impacting the whole value chain. Every industry we yeah. talk about being customer centric. What is the simple definition of being customer centric in the utility space? Knowing my customer's demand profile. Ask any utility, 75% of them will have no idea of what demand profile is of their customers. And then you can add layers onto that, I guess, if know the demand profile, know the typical demand profile, know how flexible that demand profile is. Exactly. Know what happened to that demand profile in super cold or super hot weather. Absolutely. And it's not rocket science. We do that in when, when you buy auto insurance today. Yeah. Right? 
I, I have a red car. My neighbor has the same red car, uh, but our insurance premiums are different. Why? I know so, about you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think the, the comparison to insurance is, is extremely apt that you know, when we when we buy a vehicle and we buy the gasoline to drive the vehicle, um, we know that we are taking on certain risks of of accidents and injury, but we uh, have insurance policies. And at least you know, in the U.S., I think we're we're required to have insurance policies. I wouldn't necessarily go that far for like the gritties of the market, but but one thing that I've been thinking about since February is. Um, whether it would be useful to have gritty, you know, have the kinds of, say, travel insurance policies that airlines offer, where you can choose, if you buy a non-refundable ticket, you can choose whether or not to buy travel insurance in case something unexpected means you have to cancel your trip. You could do something similar for um, if you're going to be on a real-time price contract as a small residential customer, you know, you could choose to buy an insurance contract with, you know, if the price goes above a certain amount, then, you know, cap, I'll, my my rate will be capped at that amount. And I pay for that insurance policy, right? So that, you know, those kind of market-based approaches to enabling self-insurance might be a good, a, a good approach that I think draws on a lot of our auto and travel insurance expertise. Sounds very logical when you describe it like that, Lynn. <laughs> I think to, to, to Sid's point, that's asking a lot of the consumer when uh, I think in, in, in February, we did see retailers that had the responsibility and should be experts not taking that, that, that principle of covering their risk. And I, I, I think of, to, to Sid's point of providing data actually being able to give not just the retailer but the consumers a better understanding of their consumption a better understanding of the risks that they're taking or the risks that they may be taking on i think is an essential counterpoint if they are also going to be taking on the the decision of whether to take by insurance or not yeah without the data you can't evaluate the risk and therefore you couldn't insure it in that case just to add, some of the large retailers um, who have sophisticated risk management practices in place, they were covered up to 75% of the risk. It's the smaller ones and the ones like Gritty that made the whole uh, industry, uh, they exposed the whole, whole industry to the risk. Yeah. And again, it's a very, it's a common sense thing. Demand should be equal to supply. And if my demand, if my supply costs this much, my I should be able to charge that from the demand. So if I'm serving my high cost customers with $20 per megawatt hour or two cents per kilowatt hour of, of energy, that is not the, the correct price. It may be just because yeah. there are government incentives for wind power in the night and they're bringing down the price, but there are ancillaries and other things that are sitting in the back providing insurance. So we're not taking those those cost components into consideration. So most of the large ones, I would say, were up to 75% covered, uh, maybe not 100%, but the smaller ones were the ones that really created more problems. Yeah. Well. Wow. One other one other thing that is is important in this specific event and in Texas in particular that 
I, it makes the data transparency question that much more complicated is that the real, this was not a resource adequacy problem as we discussed already. The, the power supply infrastructure was ready. Um, that I think the real failure is upstream in the gas supply and that system is not very transparent in in texas uh there's not a lot of um data on reliability of the system uh just because they're so used to being able to extract it and supply it there's not a whole lot of storage on site and uh i would argue that the regulatory relationship between the railroad commission and the industry is definitely uh, the Railroad Commission's mission is basically to protect the health of the national natural gas industry. Mm. And, uh, and so there are some very perverse incentives in the upstream uh, gas supply system that make it very opaque. And so it makes that, that data that Sid's talking about that much more difficult to, uh, to have deliver reliability and resilience. Yeah. Well, certainly, I'm sure there's, uh, I know there's report after report looking at what can be learned from this crisis. We've uh, touched on parts of that uh, today. Let's finish by bringing out the Talking New Energy crystal ball and set that out to 2030. And imagine another Texas-like crisis. Um, so, yeah, I'd like to ask each of you, very, if you can answer very briefly in the interest of time, what might be different in 2030? So the same winter storm comes along. Uh, a headline from each of you on what might be different in nine years' time. Uh, let's go, Lynn, Sid, and then John. Uh, I think I'll, I will. Uh, if we implement some of the lessons we've learned from this, we will have more data across the integrated interdependent systems from natural gas to electric to water and uh, we'll do some of the smart engineering things like re, uh, redesigning the distribution circuits so that they're smaller and you can actually roll the blackouts and we'll have automation to, to automate the rolling blackouts if they're needed, but more importantly, automation to send price signals and communicate them to consumers and their devices in ways that those uh, devices can change their settings autonomously and hopefully uh, alleviate the need to even have the rolling blackouts. Thanks, Lynn. Uh, Sid, how about you? I think, um, and I'm a big proponent of it, that consumers should be their own risk managers at the end of the day, and not the utilities. Uh, so having a unique price for every customer based on their demand profile, high or low, should be uh, should motivate customers to or encourage them to have their own distributed energy resource system or a more or a high, depending on what every consumer uh, if they give give more priority to uh, reliability, they will have let's say a battery or a fuel cell. If they give more priority to carbon footprint, they may have solar or other renewable generation and be able to control those um, uh, at their end or at the service point or at the grid edge uh, along in conjunction with a unique price for every customer. 
that probably personalization and passing the the risk and the incentives through to the customers uh, for them to act on that yeah i mean if i'm buying a red ferrari i should be be open to paying more insurance premium yeah uh, I don't know if you just given the way name the the brand of your car there, Sid, or not. But uh, no, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, John, how about you? What would be different in twenty thirty? So I would like to think that there is more whole system thinking from the regulators to provide resilience across the utilities. But from what I'm seeing from the uh, the, the, the the state legislature, I'm not overly hopeful. I think consumers are likely to take things into their own hands. We will see more EVs, more batteries and other assets that can provide individual resilience to a lot more properties across Texas. Hopefully, combined with better access to markets and price signals that can influence behaviour, those assets can then be used and can be incentivised for system benefit and provide a benefit to everyone. So if flexible demand can get the full reward for their actions, then hopefully there will be enough demand response to avoid rolling blackouts in the future. Okay. Well, uh, I hope all of your visions for 2030 are proved right. Uh, it would make for a much better and smarter and uh, more intelligent system. So thanks very much. For, to John, Sid and Lynn. That was a great discussion. We hope that shed some more light on the, the Texas crisis for you and look forward to welcoming you back to the next episode next week. Thanks and goodbye. If you're as passionate about the energy transition as we are, then please keep in touch. You can follow us and me on Twitter, LinkedIn, or subscribe to the podcasts on your chosen podcast platform. If you like the podcast and like sharing, then please do rate us. And to listen to archived episodes, to read transcripts, and to see the latest Delta EE insights, then please visit www.delta-ee.com.